invite you to turn with me this morning in your Bible to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. As we are concluding this chapter this morning, of course, Paul didn't write it in chapters. And so this is uh, just part of his letter as he's explaining the glory of the gospel. And uh, in chapter 7, specifically dealing with the weakness of the law, that the law is not going to be able to help us. And this morning in uh, Romans chapter 7, we see... Uh, that the law is good, the law is holy, but the law is not sufficient. Uh, it's not uh, able to overcome the reality of indwelling sin, and so we need a Savior. And the title of my message this morning is A Savior for Wretches. Romans chapter 7, this morning we're going to uh, begin reading at verse 14, and we'll read through verse 25. This is God's Word. Paul writes, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. But I, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's ask for the Lord's blessing. God, our Father, we thank you for this word written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the pen of the Apostle Paul and written for us today. And so I pray, Lord, that this morning again, by the Spirit, we would have ears to hear it and hearts to receive it, that today we would, Lord, be convicted and encouraged and, Lord, saved if we have not yet come to Christ. So, Lord, uh, we ask for all that you do in your, through your word, we ask that you would do it here today. And we'll give you the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would ask people for their uh, favorite chapter in the book of Romans, I doubt very many would say Romans chapter 7. Some might, but Romans chapter 7 is a, it's a bit of a hard chapter. It's a chapter that is, reminds us of our struggles and our failures and things that we're ashamed of, weaknesses that we wish weren't true of us. Uh, Romans chapter 8, that's where people would generally point for their favorite chapter. Everybody loves Romans chapter 8. Uh, Romans chapter 8 is so full of uh, promises and, and great comfort. Um, but this morning we, we're going to see that you can't get to Romans 8 and you can't get to the truth of it or the comfort of it without going through chapter 7. In fact, it is precisely the sad 
dark, hard reality of Romans 7 that uh, explains and manifests the wonder of what we read in chapter 8. You have to you have to deal with Romans seven nineteen, the evil that I would not, that I do, in order to understand the preciousness of 8 verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation in Christ, uh, for the, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That, that 8 1 explodes with, with glory and joy because 7 19 is true. Uh, Romans 7 happens to be one of the most debated chapters in the Bible, and the debate is uh, over the identity of I. So Paul references I, you'll find that pronoun 24 times in uh, this chapter, and and specifically now Romans uh, verses 14 through 25, 24 times, I, I. But, But the question is, who is this person? To whom is is Paul referring? And the debate is, is the primary debate is, is this a converted man or an unconverted man? And, and we, we have to deal with that because it has tremendous ramifications for how we're going to apply this text. Is it for us as converted people or for simply for people who are not yet converted? What, how do we understand this? And so that's where I'm going to begin this morning, the identity of I. Most of the early church fathers, uh, the common position was that Paul here is describing an unconverted man. And their reasons would primarily, uh, they would point to verses 14 and verses 18. So in verse 14, Paul says, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. In verse 18, we read, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And and the question that the early church fathers asked was, how could Paul, Paul possibly say those things about a converted person? How could Paul describe a converted person as someone who is sold under sin and unable to carry out the demands of the law? And particularly, how could Paul say that when he's just told us in chapter 6 and the first part of verse 7 that we are released from the law? having died to that which held us captive, so that we, are, uh, we serve now in the new way of the Spirit. So Paul seems to be contradicting himself, and the early church fathers would just say he's not contradicting himself. He's talking here about an unconverted person. Uh, that's, a, that is a, um, that's a legitimate place to come down on. I mean, there are people who still hold that position today. But uh, I don't think it's the correct position. I think the, the reformers were uh, more accurate as they followed the path of St. Augustine and, and held that. Paul here is actually talking about a true believer. And they would, uh, they would point to many different things, but let me just give you four reasons why the reformers, Luther, Calvin, others, held that. Uh, Paul is describing a converted person. First, they would point to Paul's use of the present tense. Uh, For the first part of chapter 7, he's been using the past tense, um, where you've died to the law and uh, our our sinful passions were uh, aroused by the law, we're we're at work, it's past tense in our members to make us obey, um, to bear fruit for death, past tense. Now suddenly in, in verse 14, he goes right into present tense, and he does that through the whole thing. So it seems to be Paul describing his current experience. Secondly, uh, they note Paul's low opinion of himself. 
In verse 14, he refers to himself as of the flesh, carnal. In verse 18, he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. And their point was just that, well, unconverted people don't talk like that. Unregenerate people um, tend to be quite self-confident. They recognize that they err from time to time and and maybe even sin, but they're, they're convinced that there actually is something in them that is inherently good. And so they would not say uh, what Paul says, that there's nothing good that dwells in me in my, that is in my flesh. You see, only those who have faced the reality of God in His holiness, in His truth, His majesty, His grandeur and glory, only people have seen that truth by faith despair of themselves like Paul does. You can think of the prophet Isaiah when he had a vision of the holiness of God in Isaiah chapter 6 and and what happens? He's undone. Woe is me. I am ruined. I'm lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips. The reality of God in His glory, in His holiness has, has shown the light of truth in Isaiah's life and he sees that he is a man who's full of sin. And so this would be a converted person then. Third, they would point Paul's attitude towards the law of God. He affirms that God's law is good. God's law is holy. It is, it is uh, and his heart resonates with the law of God. So he has the desire to do what the law says. That's verse 18. In his inner being, he delights in the law. That's verse 22. And we could point out that that again is not how unconverted people tend to speak. They maybe uh, have a certain respect for the the law, but in general, in their day-to-day life, unconverted people tend to dismiss the law. It's it's not really that big of a deal if I'm doing what what God says thou shalt not do. If I lie a little, if I steal a little, if I uh, fornicate or commit adultery a little, if, 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 if I dabble in these things, if I take God's name in vain, right? Those just aren't things to be deeply concerned about. And so, and so people easily dismiss the law, and, and they find it to be a heavy thing, and, and so they desire to throw it off. Well, that's, that's not how Paul talks. He loves the law. His grief is over his inability to keep it. And then fourth, the Reformers would point to Paul's longing to be delivered from the weakness of his flesh and his confidence that he will be. So the wrenching cry of verse 24, who will deliver me from this body of death, is answered by the bold confession of verse 25. Um, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Unconverted people don't talk like that. You didn't before you were converted. Right? That's only a, a, a confession that comes from the mouth of someone whose heart has been made new by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are some other uh, suggested interpretations of this text, but I I believe that Paul uh, here is describing the conflict that takes place in the life of a Christian. Now, I I just want to point out, in chapter 7, Paul isn't defining the whole experience of a Christian. And commentators have pointed out, and you'll notice if you read through chapter 7, it just doesn't talk about the 
the work of the Holy Spirit. We have one reference to it in verse 6, chapter 7, 6. But other than that, the Holy Spirit is absent from uh, the experience of chapter 7. He's going to get into the Holy Spirit in chapter 8. And so Paul's not describing the whole of the Christian experience, not the entire experience, but what he does say here is an, is an accurate description of the Christian experience. If you are a, a true Christian this morning, you will be able to affirm everything Paul says. You will, you will confess that the law is good, right? Verse 14, if you're a Christian, you love the law of God. Uh, you'll confess that at times you don't understand your own actions. You'll admit that you say and do and think the very things that you hate. So you'll, you'll acknowledge that verse 15 is true. You'll confess that there's nothing good in you that is in your flesh, verse 18. If you're a true Christian, uh, you, will, you will confess... Uh, profess a desire to be delivered from this body of death. One of, the, one of the things that thrills you about heaven, next to I get to be with Jesus, the next best thing is I get to be done with sin. I get to put it off, finally, forever, free. Your heart hungers for that if you're a Christian. And so you confess the truth of verse 24. And every Christian professes the truth of verse 25, that your hope, your only hope, is Jesus Christ, your Lord. And so you give thanks to God. Now, Paul is, Paul is laying all of that out to make one basic point, and his basic point in the flow of the letter is that the law is not the solution. The law is not the solution to our problem. The law is holy and good, but the law cannot make you holy and good. No matter how hard you try, the law does not have the ability to overcome the reality of your indwelling sin. Story is uh, told of Thomas Carlyle, a um, Scottish philosopher, when he was a young boy, and the, he and the family were sitting around talking about preachers, as, as people sometimes do. And, and Carlyle boldly remarked, he said, well, I will tell you this, <laughs> If I were ever a preacher, I'd make short work of it. I would go up to the pulpit, look out to the congregation, and simply tell them, you good people know what you should be doing. Now go home and do it. End of sermon. Well, after a pause, Thomas's godly mother gently replied, I, Thomas, but would you tell him? How? Would you tell them how? Because that's the rub. The great hindrance to our growth and sanctification isn't that we don't know what we should do. I think every one of you this morning probably pretty quickly come up with a list of 10 things that you should change in your life or things that ought to be different. You ought to be more thankful, shouldn't you? You ought to be more patient, more loving, more productive, more zealous for God. You should be less proud, less self-serving. You should stop smoking, stop lusting, stop coveting, stop taking your spouse for granted. Stop yelling at the kids. Shouldn't you? 
Of course you should, and you know all these things. Our problem isn't a lack of knowing. Our problem is a lack of doing. Over and over, we find ourselves failing to do the things that we know we should and doing those things we know we shouldn't do. And we can be tempted to despair. Am I really a Christian at all? Real Christians don't struggle like this, do they? And Romans 7, you see, is a very important, wonderfully honest answer to that question. Yes, real Christians do. Real Christians do find themselves doing the very thing that they hate. Not always, not only, but far too often and truly. And so the I is referring to a Christian. And Paul wants us to see then the reality of this conflict, and that's what we'll look at second, the reality of this conflict. Paul paints a very graphic picture of a a Christian that's caught between his desire to obey the law of God and the reality of sin that dwells within him. And so he says in verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, it's from God, it's, it's of heaven, it's good and pure, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. I am of the flesh. By by flesh, Paul does not mean his corporeal body, his physical body. Uh, What he is referring to is is what one commentator calls uh, our own unaided human nature. It's it's sort of us in, uh, in, in our native, essential, fallen self. Just you without any influence of the grace of God. That you, that me, is That part of us, right, that's sold under sin, and it's it's the reason that we still sin. We we still sin because in our own native self, we are still prey to the power of indwelling sin. And, and, And that reality is what produces the confounding experience of verse 15, where Paul says, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now again, Paul is not describing the entirety of his Christian experience. There are many times when by the power of the Holy Spirit, he will find himself doing exactly what he loves. But verse 15 is also true. And it is profoundly frustrating. It is perplexing. It's confounding. Why do I do what I in my inner being hate? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Isn't, Isn't this our experience? Have you ever just looked in the mirror and, 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 and asked yourself, what's wrong with me? Why did I get angry again? Why did I give in to gluttony again? Why did I waste hours of precious time on social media again? Why did I look at pornography again? Why do I do the things I hate to do? Why? And it's, prof- it's profoundly perplexing. <laughs> Why do I do evil when I, when I know it's evil and I truly, truly want to do what's good? What in the world's going on? Well, Paul explains what's going on. First, he, he, he explains clearly that the problem is not the law. 
Right? Verse 16. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. The problem is not the law. And we would all agree with that. No Christian would say the, the law is the problem. The world says at times, right, the law is the problem. The, the law makes me feel bad. And when I feel bad, then I do bad. And, and so if we would just get rid of the laws, a people wouldn't be compelled, right, to break the laws. So just get, get rid of laws about, you know, prostitution and laws about drug use and, and laws about a whole variety of other things because laws make people feel bad. And when people feel bad, they do bad. But that's not how a Christian talks. The Christian says, in my inner being, I love the law. In my inner being, I want to keep the law of God. I want to, to love the Lord my God with all my heart and soul and strength. I want to love my neighbor as myself. I agree the law is good. The law is not the problem. So what's the problem? Verse 17. So now... It is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin that dwells within me. That, that is quite a statement. It's, it's in tremendously helpful. It's very bold. Uh, Paul is not denying the fact that he sins or even the responsibility for his sin. What, what he's doing is explaining why he sins. So Douglas Moose says his point is that his failure to put into action what he desires to do shows that there is something beside himself involved in the situation. There is another actor in the drama. That is very helpful. There's another actor in the drama, sin living in me is how Paul describes it. It means, it means that if you are struggling with sin, in truth, you're not, a, you're not a freak, you're not a mistake, you're not a reject, you're not a failure. It, it means you have the same problem that every other Christian has. There is a remnant of corruption that resides within you. Sin dwells in you. Now, if you've come to Christ confessing your sin, if you've come to Christ calling on his name, God wants you to know you are really and truly saved and you are fully and forever justified. But at this stage in our redemption, we are not yet glorified. We're not yet perfected. Sin still remains. And, and Paul locates the reality of, of, of that power in our flesh, in the flesh. Verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out in my flesh. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And I, so now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now that's a, that's a very important insight for two reasons. First, I just want you to notice that Paul talks about this conflict as an ongoing battle in his own life. Don't miss that. Paul says, I have the desire to do what is right, but I, Apostle Paul... One of the 12 apostles, I, the apostle Paul, I also have an ongoing experience of inability. 
in my native self. And, and that produces a reoccurring failure to obey the law of God as I want to do. There's evil that I do not want to do, and I, the Apostle Paul, find that I keep on doing it. I just think that's an incredibly honest statement. Should an apostle admit this? Aren't apostles supposed to be examples of spiritual success? Well, how do we make sense of this? And I would say we make sense of it by thinking, by uh, considering that maybe we've been defining success incorrectly. Maybe uh, success doesn't mean sustained victory over sin. Maybe success means a life of ongoing repentance and faith. Repentance and confession and faith in Christ. Maybe, maybe success means no hiding, no pretending. Maybe means that we're free actually in Christ and because of Christ to do what we deeply wish we could do, which is just tell the truth about our battles, about our failures, about our need, and about our only hope. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to, to come out in the open in that way and, and just like the Apostle Paul, just admit that we, we make a mess of this. We're not good at it. And we have, an, we have an ongoing present tense battle with sin in our life. That's how Paul talks. I think it's, it's tremendously compelling. I'd like to hang out with a person like that. I think you would too. You see, and it's important we understand this because it, we're going to just be full of despair unless we just face this truth of an indwelling sin. Um, J.I. Packer gives a great example of this. He, he talks about how crucial this, this understanding was for his own spiritual life. He was converted as a young man at Oxford. And uh, he um, came under the influence of some men who were teaching that it is possible for Christians, if they are fully and sufficiently consecrated to Christ, that they can attain perfection. They can attain a status where they no longer sin. And so, so J.I. as a young Christian committed himself to that, and he consecrated himself to Christ, and then he'd fall into sin, and he reconsecrated himself to Christ. And then he fell into sin, and he did it over again. And he he pleaded with God in prayer that God would send that second blessing of the Holy Spirit so that he would be able then to be free from the battle with sin. That's what was held out before him. Do you know what he says about that experience? He says, it nearly drove me to suicide. He was in constant despair, overwhelmed with despair. He was failing as a Christian in his mind. His rescue came when he picked up John Owen and read John Owen's um, description of the truth of Romans chapter 7. I, I, uh, I would recommend to you, there's an excellent book by uh, Chris Lungard called The Enemy Within. If you want one book to read in the next few months, it's, it's uh, uh, 125 pages. Uh, the enemy within is Chris Lungard uh, taking John Owen and all the riches of his writing and making it accessible and readable and very practical and, 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 and for today. I've, I've used this in the past with my high school theology class. Be great for a small group Bible study. Be great to read for your own personal devotions. The enemy within. 
you'll find to be tremendously helpful and insightful. We need to understand this. We need to accept the fact that sin does dwell within us and it's not going away until the day that we die. But there's another thing we need to realize that Paul points out here. While the reality of indwelling sin is true, and we've got this, this, this other law waging war in our members against us, it's, that's not all that's true. There, there's another reality that, that Paul wants us to see in verse 20. If I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it. How many times have you read that and, and just stopped to let that truth settle in? It, it's an amazing statement. If you find in yourself a genuine desire to do what God commands, then that is your new and true self. By the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, that is the new you. Right? If anyone is in Christ, Paul says he's a new creation. This new you, united to Jesus Christ by faith, that is your truest self. That, that is your identity. That's your truest self. So much so that Paul can say, when I sin, it is no longer I who do it. It is sin dwelling in me. So it's... it's, it's there's, there's a part of me, Paul says, that, that is still corrupt, indwelling sin, but it does not belong to my true self. It's an unwelcome guest. It's a squatter who's taken up residence, and I, I, I can't get him to leave. He won't leave until the, the day I, I die. But he's not welcome, and it's not, it's not me in that sense. It's not my true self. And Paul is very careful in these following verses to clearly delineate those two realities, the reality of the new me and the reality of remaining sin. So notice verse 21. I find this law to be that when I, when I want to do right, my, my new self in Jesus, evil lies there close at hand. It's not me. It's, 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 it's there alongside of me. I'm not evil, I'm in Jesus Christ. Evil is right here alongside. For I, me, in Christ, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Verse 23, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. There's this, there's this raging war going on between I and the evil that lies close at hand. Now, does, doesn't that ring true with your Christian experience? I mean, in your inner being, you delight in the law of God. You, you want to do what God desires. You, you, in your inner being, you want to be free of your pride and your lust and your greed and your bitterness and your, your ungrateful heart. You, you wish all that were gone. God has created those desires in you by His Holy Spirit. That's the longing of your regenerated heart. But there's this other principle waging war against the desire of your heart. And, and, and so you have this war because while in your inner being you delight in the law of God, in, in your flesh, not just your body, but, but, but part of it is, is, is your corporal, it's in your members, there's this other desire. I want to sin. 
I want to satisfy the flesh in my members. I, I want to get my own way, and, and, and I want to satisfy my lust, and I want to express my anger. That's the other principle that, that, that's, that's waging war. And, and so that's where Paul says it's so confounding. It's exhausting and perplexing and confounding. And if you're fighting that battle correctly, if you're doing it right, you'll come to the same conclusion as the Apostle Paul, wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. Wretched, wretched man that I in my flesh, my native self am. Who's going to deliver me from, from, from that body? Uh, I, I, that word wretched, is, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weighted word. I, it might seem a bit overdramatic to some of you. I, I have to confess, when I wrote my title, uh, A Savior for Wretches, I paused and I thought, do we really want to say that? Are, are we really wretches? Well, yeah, in our native fallen flesh, that's exactly what we are. And we're, there's the wretchedness that belongs yet to our existence even as Christians. We're not going to be in heaven pining for the old days. We're going we're to realize that was a wretched experience. Even with all the grace and the goodness of God, that, that the battle with sin was such a miserable experience. No one's going to be wishing we could do that again. That's what Paul means. And the truth is, and you can talk to any elderly saint about this, that the more you grow as a Christian, the more you come to know the glory and the goodness and the holiness and the truth about God, and the more you come to love Jesus, and the more you get a sense of what holiness actually is, and the more you hunger for it, the more wretched you will feel yourself to be. And you will, you will cherish Jesus as the only hope you have. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's the experience of every growing Christian. I want you to just quickly note, Paul doesn't say what can rescue me. That's, that's what we often ask, right, as we're in the battle. What can rescue me? What, what new book? What new discipline? What new experience? What new counselor? What can rescue me? And of course, the answer is nothing can rescue you. Nothing can rescue you, but somebody can. Jesus can. And only Jesus can. Every other, every other help is going to prove to be vain. Jesus and Jesus alone can help you. Jesus came to earth, friends, exactly to help us. He, he came for wretches like us. His, his obedient life and his atoning death is, is fully sufficient to wash away our sin and his, the power of his victorious resurrected life is sufficient through the Holy Spirit to sanctify us as God goes to work by his spirit against indwelling sin and the battle is on. That's Romans chapter 8. We'll get there. But that's the truth about what Jesus can do and what Jesus will do. And it's our only hope. It's our, he's our only help. And so we need to make this our life's one ambition to get to know Jesus. Jesus.
and to, to go to Jesus over and over and over and over again. Go to Jesus. That's the essence of the Christian life. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. I love the hymn by Chris Rice, the untitled hymn. Weak and wounded sinner, lost and left to die. Oh, raise your head for love is passing by. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and live And now your burden's lifted and carried far away, and precious blood has washed away the stain. So sing to Jesus. Sing to Jesus. And precious blood, excuse me, and like a newborn baby, don't be afraid to crawl. And remember, when you walk, sometimes we fall, sometimes we do. So fall on Jesus. Fall on Jesus. Fall on Jesus and live. That's the Christian life. Right? We stand in the grace of God and we fall on the grace of God and the grace of God is sufficient. The God that called us from all eternity, the God that gave us to his son is the God that will carry out and complete the work that he's begun in us and it will be grace all the way through. And it's sufficient. It's enough for your struggle, for your sin, for your battle. Jesus is sufficient. He just calls you to come to him and to fight that battle in his presence and leaning on his power and then with his people. To fight that battle with your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ so you can encourage them and they can encourage you and we walk walk together experiencing the truth of Romans chapter 7 but also as we'll see experiencing the wonder of Romans chapter 8. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that by the power of the Holy Spirit we're able to put to death the misdeeds of the body Step by step, we're able to grow, and one day we'll put it all aside, and Jesus will be everything. May that day come soon. Amen. Amen. God in heaven, you know our heart this morning. You know the battles that we have faced with sin, and you know, Lord, all the different ways we've, we've lost in our battles all the times that we've done what we hate to do and said what we hate to say and and thought what we despise. And Father, some of us this week has been that battle. For others, Lord, we are reeling from a battle uh, maybe in our past. And Lord, there's going to be battles in the future. And we're going to find Romans 7 to be true again and again until we finally put aside this body of death. But Father, I thank you so much that in this battle, you love us. In this battle, you have rescued and saved us. In this battle, we are, we are, we are new creations in Jesus Christ and, and we live in Christ And the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon us so that we hunger for things that are righteous and good and true in Jesus. And and you're teaching us how to depend on Christ, how to abide in Christ, how to wait for Christ. Because he is our life. And Father, I just pray if there's anyone here this morning who does not know that life yet, that Lord, you would help them to see that the law or, or their own good intentions will never be sufficient to rescue them from themselves. 
but Jesus can, and Jesus does, and Jesus will. And Lord, I pray, for, I pray for young people this morning who are just facing themselves and the reality and the power of their indwelling sin, maybe for the first time. And they're, they're confounded, overwhelmed. Oh God, I, I just pray that they could see that there's a Jesus and a Savior and a gospel for them where Jesus meets us in all of our wretchedness because he loves us and he walks with us. He forgives us and he will slowly be at work changing us. I pray, Lord, for those who are caught in some addiction today, drugs, alcohol, sex, self. I pray, oh God, that we would run to Jesus today with all of our wretchedness. We would not try to clean up first, but we would go to Christ as we are and, and cast ourselves on him and then walking with brothers and sisters who can help us, we would find that Jesus really is sufficient even as we battle. So Lord, keep us walking, keep us believing, trusting, hoping. And one day, oh Jesus, one day, it'll all be done. And we will walk perfected into the presence of Christ. May that day come soon. And God's people said, Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to sing the hymn, Flee from Sin, Run to Jesus. There's power in the finished work of Jesus.
now receive the blessing of the Lord. The Lord himself bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen.